This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Friends, here we are back again. Uh, welcome to the Transcend Human Podcast. Great to be with you. It is August 21st, 2023. So what I want to do first today is apologize for the last episode. Uh, I went back and listened to it and I just wanted to check on the sound quality and I realized it was terrible. Um, I'm, I'm struggling here. We were in this new house and I'm really struggling because my office is this bare room with hardwood floors, nothing on the walls yet. And so it is really hard to record in there. Um, I tried last week putting up a bunch of blankets and things like that uh, just to to kind of buffer the noise. Um, but apparently it did not work very well. So we're trying something new today. Um, I'm out in the living room and you're going to love this. So have you ever just tried to do something and then you're like, oh my goodness, the whole universe is against me. The whole universe does not want this to happen. That's kind of the way I'm feeling about this this podcast episode. Um, I get out here, I get everything set up. And for those of you who know, we're we're in Southern California. We're living in the desert. So rain is pretty much not a thing, right? I mean, you get rainstorms during the, the winter season. But for most of the year, you don't even have rain ever. Well, guess what's coming through right now? Uh, the remnants of the hurricane that hit Mexico. Uh, it's, it's heading north. It's going to be over our area here in a couple hours. And so we're getting rain. Um, and where I'm sitting, um, I can hear the rain just pounding in the back porch on the back patio, um, hitting some things that we have out there. And so I'm sure it's going to end up in the, in the episode, Right but that's okay. It's life. We're going to continue anyways, and it's going to be great. So hopefully I have some of the sound issues figured out in terms of just the echoing and the the, the stuff that you hear in the room. Um, but if you hear rain falling from time to time, you'll know, and you can blame it on the hurricane. So that's it. Let's let's dive into our episode today. Um, for those of you who know, uh, we are in an, a series called Transcending Eschatology, and we are on part 10 today. It's crazy how many uh, of these we've already knocked out. So I'm not going to go back through episode one through nine. Um, it, you've, if you've been along with us, you already know where we've been. Uh, for those of you who have just dived in, um, you might want to go back and start at the beginning and listen straight through. So today's episode, Transcending Eschatology, Part 10, The Right Bookend and the Seven Churches. Chapter 1, John's Vision of Heaven. Chapter 2, Onions Have Layers. And Chapter 3, You've Got Mail. Chapter 1, John's Vision of Heaven. So here we are making the big transition, right? We're going from the left bookend or the, the book of Daniel to the right bookend, the book of Revelation. Uh, we, we basically spent nine weeks discussing things like what eschatology is, 
what different world religions believe about the end of time. Uh, we then narrowed it down to what Christians typically believe about the end of time. And then we discussed end time passages in the Bible that are basically written in pretty straightforward or what we called plain language. And then we walked through the book of Daniel. We read some interesting stories. Each one of them centered around this idea of worship, how worship is core to the human condition, and how we're all trying to find something to worship in some form or fashion. And even if that one thing isn't God or the one who created us, we'll find something, right? Whether it be alcohol or sex or gambling or fame or fortune, you know, whatever, whatever it is that we find to worship, we will do it. Then we move from there into apocalyptic prophecy, the section of Daniel where he started to learn about his dreams and his visions that he was having during his life. And each one was a little bit strange on the surface, right? But then each dream was interpreted by an outside source, uh, heavenly beings that were sent to help Daniel understand what he was seeing. Inside of these dreams, we learned a lot about the large world civilizations that would exist from Daniel's day all the way to the end of time, right? We talked about Babylon, Media, and Persia, Greece, Rome. We then learned that Rome would be divided and that many kingdoms would exist from that point on. We learned about a little power called the Little Horn that would rise up during this time and persecute God's true followers. And then finally, we learned about a bunch of interesting time periods, right? Uh, and we talked about the day-year principle and how applying it seems to bring everything into focus. These time periods all come together in an amazing end-of-time timeline, a prophecy chart, if you will, that fits together like a puzzle. Of course, we also talked about the fact that historicists and futurists believe a little bit differently, right? They interpret things different. So the historicists typically apply the day-year principle across the board, uh, they also believe that all of these dates and timelines occurred in the past, and that at some point we're simply waiting for Jesus to return. The futurists, on the other hand, typically pick and choose when they apply the day-year principle, and they believe that many of the time periods have not happened yet. They believe that some of the time periods were meant to be cut off from these books of the Bible and moved all the way down to the end of time to help make up time periods around the rapture, the reign of the Antichrist, and the eventual return of Christ. So that should about bring us up to speed, which means we're ready to move to the New Testament, right? In fact, all the way to the end of the New Testament, to the book of Revelation. And as we'll see, it makes total sense why this is the last book of the Bible, because it wraps things up. Not only apocalyptic prophecy, but it also is the climax to the overarching story of the Bible. What's that story? Well, ultimately, it's a battle between good and evil. We've talked a lot about that kind of stuff on Transcend Human, right? Uh, it begins with the story of heaven, uh, the fact that there's a being that has always existed and always will exist. Uh, it talks about the creation of our little planet, the origin of the sin virus, how Satan found sin within his heart. He fostered it. He went around and spread it to other angels. And that le eventually led to a war in heaven. Satan fought against God and God removed him from heaven. So Satan fell from heaven and ended up here on earth, where he was able to tempt humans, the beings that God had created. Eventually, we fell for Satan's trap. Uh, the world obviously took a, took a hit um, and has been kind of spiraling out of control ever since the sin virus took over. 
Next, the Bible talks about Jesus coming to earth to save humanity, right? How he was born as a baby, he was part God, part human, lived a perfect life, and ended up dying for our sins on the cross. And then we come to the final showdown, the one described in Revelation, where there's this battle between good and evil so that God can right the wrong that has happened to our planet. And that's it. That's what Revelation describes. But before we get too far down that road, let's join John as he gets a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. Because Revelation opens with this thing called a prologue, basically three verses that explain some really interesting information. First, it explains that the information in this book was given by God to Jesus. Then, Jesus gives it to an angel, and the angel is instructed to take it to John. Now, I don't know why I find that so fascinating, but I just do. It's as if God is the only one who knew this information, and then at some point he decided to bring Jesus into the loop. Now, that's something I just can't wrap my brain around, because if God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are considered one, this thing we call the Trinity, it really seems like they should all know the same things. But not something to dwell on. Something, uh, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll ask God to explain it to me. Next, it says that this information is about events that must soon take place. Now, this is very interesting because we believe that John received this information and wrote it down before 100 AD. Now, if that's true, we're almost 2,000 years past that, which makes you wonder, what does the whole must soon take place phrase actually mean? Like, what is it actually referring to? It seems like that ship has almost sailed by now. Next, God blesses the people who read the book. He says, blessed are those who read this book, who listen to the message, and to those who obey or do what it says. Why? Because the time is near. Again, with the whole soon-to-happen thing, right? But I'm just telling you what it says. And that's really it for the prologue. Chapter 2, Onions Have Layers. So after the short prologue, we dive right into the vision that John had, right? The one that the angel brought and showed him in a dream. So John starts by explaining what he was writing is for seven of the churches in Asia. And to give credibility to his writing, he explains who he got the information from. So there's an entire section of chapter 1 where John uses phrases like the one who was, who is, and who is to come, the first to rise from the dead, the ruler of the kings of this world, the one who freed us from our sins, the one who is coming, and every eye will see him, even the ones who pierced him, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Almighty One. Now, how's that for reference, right? I'm writing you some stuff, but it came from this guy, and you don't want to mess with this guy. From there, John tells us a little bit about his life situation, which apparently wasn't going so well at the time. He was a prisoner on this little island off of Greece called Patmos. He was incarcerated for being a Jesus freak. Shout out to DC Talk and their popular album from the mid-90s. And that's where John found himself locked up for the remainder of his life on an island in the Aegean Sea. Though some believe he made it off the island and ended up dying in Ephesus at some point. But regardless, he wrote the letters while on the island. And he would have given them to a messenger since he was incarcerated. And the messenger would have had to board a boat 
take it to the mainland, which today is the country of Turkey. The messenger would then walk along one of the more traveled roads, stopping along the way to deliver each letter to the seven identified churches along that somewhat circular route. Now, just for funsies, uh, here are the seven churches and their modern-day equivalents in Turkey. First is Ephesus, uh, a city that now lies in ruin but is near the city of Selkuk. Smyrna now lives within a city called Izmir. Pergamos, now referred to as Pergamon, uh, is near the city of Bergama. Thyatira now lives within a city called Akhazar. Uh, Sardis lies in ruin near a city called Sart. Philadelphia now lives within the city of Alasahar, or Alessahar. I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. Uh, and then Laodicea now lives in ruin uh, near the city of Denizli. So there you go, the seven churches. But why these seven, right? There are hundreds of cities, hundreds of churches to choose from. Why these seven? Well, I'm glad you asked because I asked the exact same question. Because for me, this is just another example of why I can't view the Bible as a work of fiction. There are just way too many connecting elements, uh, tiny pieces that fit together. Um, there's just no way that this was written for entertainment purposes only, much less written to become a document meant to confuse or blind millions of people into living a lie, the way some believe. The Bible is like an onion with layer after layer of complexity and complication. Yes, there are human writers that can weave a good tale, but why is it that we read their books one time and then move on? Or why do we watch a really good movie once or maybe even multiple times because it's just that good, but yet that's where it ends? We don't change our lives because of it. We don't use it as a manual for all future decision-making, right? And yet that's what the Bible is. The Bible is this onion that has everything within it. Our origin story, the battle between good and evil, how to live a solid life, how to treat those around us, how to escape the curse that was placed on this earth, and how it all plays out in the end, even if we don't always agree on the details. Now I know there are a few contenders for this honor as well. You have the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the teachings of Buddha, the teachings of Confucius, etc., etc., etc. And some of these have loyal followers dedicated to reading, understanding, and living their lives based on that knowledge. But to me, this doesn't decrease my belief in the Bible. It actually strengthens it because it shows that humanity is searching for the truth and that it's out there somewhere. Little nod to the X-Files there for those of you who know, you know. Uh, but back to the seven churches. So from everything I've read, the seven churches can be viewed from at least three different vantage points. Three unique onion peels, if you will. Onion peel number one is what we would call the prophetic or the historical interpretation. Now, small tangent before we dive into this. So I want to start by saying that I don't think this is a universally accepted interpretation. Uh, I came across a number of articles, and I put the links in the show notes. And these articles basically describe the four interpretations of the book of Revelation. Now, these are going to sound familiar, right, because we've kind of talked about them before, but they have some added information that was interesting to me because we're just talking about the book of Revelation. 
So first up, we have the idealist. So the idealist believes that apocalyptic prophecy is neither historical or futuristic. It's simply a work of fiction, symbolically presenting the battle between good and evil. So an idealist probably would be okay reading the book once or twice for encouragement, but wouldn't find it much uh, more useful than that moving forward. Next up, we have the preterist. So as before, we talked about the preterist believing that everything written in apocalyptic prophecy has already taken place. So similar to the idealist, reading the book a few times might be fun for, for gaining some historical perspective. But since nothing is prophetic or future pointing, um, then there's really no reason to spend much time in the book of Revelation. And then we have the historicist. So, similar to what we've discussed earlier, this is a belief that much of the apocalyptic prophecies can be traced back to events in the past, but that the prophecies also describe the future and what is to take place at the end of time. And then we'll wrap things up with the futurist. So, similar to the historicist, in that they do believe some things have been fulfilled in the past, but most of apocalyptic prophecy is yet to come. One example of that that we've already talked about is the, the 70 weeks of Daniel. So a historicist basically takes the 70 weeks as one big chunk of time. The futurist takes all of it but the last week of years and puts it in the past and then moves that week at the end all the way down to the end of time and believes that it, it will happen in the future. Now, another thing that we haven't really talked about is how the nation of Israel plays into the end time events. So idealists, historicists, and preterists don't really believe that Israel plays a major role in prophecy. The belief <clears throat> is, is sort of that uh, Israel was God's chosen people for a time and a season. Uh, but when Jesus came, Jesus the Messiah, they chose against Jesus, and from there Israel gave up that special place in history. The gospel went from there to the entire world through the Christian faith, the faith that believes in Jesus and his second coming. Now, I don't think that any of these groups oppose Israel playing a role. In other words, if we got to the end of time and God had some special plan for Israel based on their history, I think we would all understand and be supportive. It's just that we don't really read this in prophecy anywhere. So this is where futurists really take off. Um, there was a huge movement back in the 1830s that provided a new approach to Bible prophecy. Uh, we refer to this as dispensationalism, uh, and it has become the fad, if you will, made popular by the Left Behind series of books and movies. And part of the dispensational interpretation involves the nation of Israel. First, uh, they believe that there is a distinct difference between Jewish people and the rest of the world who believe in God or in Jesus. So there are covenants with Israel, and then there are covenants with everyone else. And uh, supposedly God set aside Israel to work through the church, uh, but one day he will restore Israel, and his covenant with them will be fulfilled. Next, there is this belief that the kingdom was delayed, that the Jews rejected Jesus' offer of the kingdom when he came, so that offer was withdrawn but only for a time. They believe that Jesus will physically return to the earth and will set up a 1,000-year kingdom to reign from David's throne in Jerusalem. So in order for that to happen, 
Israel must rebuild the temple, they must reinstitute or reinstate the priesthood, and also reinstitute animal sacrifices, uh, because they believe that during the time of the Antichrist, there will be a seven-year peace treaty with Israel that will be broken in the middle of that seven years um, when the Antichrist walks into the temple and causes the sacrifices to cease. So you can see how this adds a whole new wrinkle into the interpretation of the end-time events. And the last thing, this is something that I only learned um, in reading one of these articles, is where they believe that the break is between um, the book of Re in the book of Revelation between history and the future. So futurists believe that the only historical piece of the book of Revelation is chapter 1. Uh, chapters 2 to 3 is talking to the churches that exist right now, and chapters 4 through 22 are all future events at the end of time. Okay, so like I said, small tangent, but I think that it will be super helpful as we move forward. Uh, because once we get through the letters to the seven churches, there is going to always be these two parallel interpretations that we'll need to jump back and forth between the historicist interpretation and the futurist or dispensational interpretation. Again, I want to present both because I, I just want to have all of our ducks in a row, even though that I haven't really hid the fact that I lean historicist. So back to onion peel number one, the prophetic or historical interpretation. So like I said, this is probably just a historicist interpretation, but it basically suggests that each church represents a period of time throughout the history of the larger church or, or the global church, right? From the time of the early church in the, in the time of Jesus all the way to the end of time. And here are those suggested time periods. The first church, Ephesus, is said to be the early church or the church from 31 AD or the death of Jesus until 100 AD. This is a period of about 69 years. During this time, um, it was the early church. They were full of passion and resolve. They embraced the teachings of Jesus. Uh, at one point, they baptized 3,000 people in one day. Um, so that's Ephesus. Smyrna is said to be representative of the period of time from 100 to 313 AD, a period of 213 years. Smyrna is known as the persecuted church. So during this time, uh, the church endured a lot of persecution. Next, we have Pergamos. Um, the time period for Pergamos is 313 to 538 AD, a period of 225 years. And this was exactly the opposite. This was a, a period of time when the church became popular. Christianity was popular thanks to the conversion of Constantine. Um, and so Christianity was kind of like it is today in our country. It was just, if you want to believe that, great. It's wonderful. Um, next, we have Thyatira. And the time period there is from 538 until 1565 AD, a period of 1,027 years, much longer. Um, this is said to be the church during the Dark Ages, where truth was basically shut down. Uh, the Catholic Church attempted to snuff out any trace of dissenting Christian beliefs. The church was almost extinguished, but small pockets stayed true to the teachings of Jesus, and that carried them through. Next, we have Sardis, representing the time period of 1565 to 1750, 
AD, a period of about 185 years. Um, this was the Protestant Reformation. So people became more and more outspoken about the issues they saw within the Catholic Church. Uh, people like John Wycliffe, John Huss, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and many more stood up for the truth that they believed in. And many of them were killed for standing up for their beliefs. Um, but that led to the birth of Protestant Christianity. Uh, next, we have Philadelphia representing the time period from 1750 to 1844, a period of 94 years. So this is reviewed as the revived church. During this time period, many churches went back to some of their original teachings. They dusted them off. They got serious about them. Um, they reexamined prophecy, uh, which then led to kind of a, a new understanding of Daniel and Revelation and what that really meant. And many believe that they were living in the last days during that time. And then finally, we have the Church of Philadelphia. So Philadelphia is from 1844 until the end of time. As of 2023, that is a time period of 179 years. Laodicea is considered the end time church. Um, after the great disappointment in 1844, the church kind of settled in for the long haul, if you will. And this is really the time period that we believe is the last time period to exist, right? Ending with the second coming of Jesus. Now, why were these dates chosen? Well, mostly because the information written in each letter, right? When you, when you read the specific letter to the specific church, it kind of lines up with these time periods throughout the life of the big C church. Now, that's bizarre, if you ask me, right? These, these layers that we're talking about, these onion peels that just seem to get deeper and deeper as you read the book. What we need to take seriously about this layer is the fact that if it's true, we're living in the end times, right? We are the church of Laodicea. Onion peel number two, the local context interpretation. So this layer suggests that each letter was meant for that specific church. In other words, the letter to Ephesus was actually for the Christians living in Ephesus at that time. The letter matched the type of people in that church and addressed the things that they were dealing with. Now, I'm not going to go into detail here because we'll do that in the next chapter um, as we read each letter uh, separately. And then onion peel number three, the extended or personal interpretation. So this layer suggests that each letter can be read by any church or any Christian at any time throughout history. In other words, there have been and will be Ephesus-type churches all the way from 31 AD to the end of time. And there will be people who act the way the Ephesus Christian acted throughout the same period of time. Again, we'll walk through each of the letters and see what uh, Jesus had said to each church. But this layer suggests that every Christian and every church can be one of the seven churches at any given time. So there you go. The letters to the churches have a prophetic purpose, a local purpose, and a personal purpose. Chapter 3, You've Got Mail. So now we understand the context for the letters and what each church represents. A time period in church history, a specific church in John's day, and a way of thinking that any church or person could fall into from time to time. So let's get to those letters and see what they say. Now, you might call me lazy, but I'm not going to read each letter word for word. 
right? This episode is going to be fairly lengthy to begin with, so um, I'll let you go and read them on your own time. It's pretty easy and it's fast. Just read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 and check them out if you have time. What I am going to do is I'm going to summarize each of them in this way. So I'm going to give you the name of the church, then I'm going to give you its nickname or the thing that it was really known for. Then we're going to walk through the positive things God said about that church. Then we're going to talk about the negative things God said about that church. And then there's a section at the end where God provides a reward. So he he says things like, to, to the person who overcomes, this is the reward. And so each church has a reward we'll talk through. So let's dive in, starting with Ephesus. Ephesus is called the passionless church. So the positive that God said, um, there, the people there had patience, they had good works, and they resisted false teachings. But the negative is that they left their first love, right? They lost the passion that they had and their love for each other and for the church. So this is the this is the church that had a lot of passion at the very beginning, right? They they saw the crucifixion of Jesus. They really were fired up. They wanted to take that information to the whole world. Lots of passion about it. But at some point they lost it and they just went back to living their normal lives. Now the reward for overcoming for the church of Ephesus is the ability to eat from the tree of life. And for those of you who've been around the Christian faith for a while, you know that the tree of life was a tree in the Garden of Eden, and it's what Adam and Eve were allowed to eat that kept them alive forever. So basically it's saying if you, if you overcome and make it through to the end, you will be able to eat from that tree of life again. Next we have the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was known as the persecuted church. The positive things God had to say is that they were rich in all things spiritual. The negative, interestingly enough, there is no negative. This is one of the two churches where God did not even give a reproof at all. Nothing negative listed. Now, the reward for the people at Smyrna, not being harmed by the second death. Now, for those of you, again, who've been around the Christian faith, you know that there are two deaths talked about in uh, in the Bible, there's the the normal death when you when your life ends and you and you die and you're buried, that is considered the first death. But there is a belief that at the end of time, God will raise everyone from the dead, and there will be another judgment, and that judgment will basically weed out those who really want to to go to heaven, those who love God and want to follow Him, and those who don't, and those who don't will die again. And that's the second death. And so to the people of Smyrna, God said, if you overcome, you will not be harmed by the second death. Next, we have Pergamos, or what we called the popular church. So the positive that God saw in Pergamos is that many were holding on tightly to the faith, and they had not denied that they believed in Jesus. That was great. The negative is that they allowed false doctrines to creep in. So this church had, because it was so popular, a lot of people started going to church. But a lot of these people had older, um, not religious or not Christian beliefs that they brought in. It started to mix with Christianity, and pretty soon there were false doctrines inside of the church. 
Now, the reward for Pergamos is the ability to eat hidden manna and to be given a white stone with a new name on it. Now, both of these are very um, important to the Jewish people because manna was something that God provided for them when they were in the desert. And then there's some story in the Bible about having um, your name written on a stone, which means you're a new, a new person, that God, uh, that God knows you, and that the name on it is something that God gave you, stuff like that. Um, so I'm not going to go into detail on that. But just so you know, it all ties back to other elements of the Bible that talk about uh, becoming uh, a new person. Next, we have Thyatira known as the Compromising Church. So this is the church um, that started to compromise with their faith, but there was still positive, right? God said that the church understood charity, they, they understood service and faith, and that they were working toward these things on a daily basis. So that's all great. The negative for Thyatira is that they harbored Jezebel. Now, Jezebel was a queen um, that believed in false teachings, things that were very much part of the occult, um, things like that. And so basically what God was saying is that um, the, the people at Thyatira allowed these false teachings into their midst, and those teachings led people astray. And so that was the, the negative that God had for Thyatira. Reward-wise, um, to the overcomers, God will provide authority over the nations, a ruling rod, and a morning star. Now, I'm not sure what these things refer to, but it sounds pretty cool to me. And then we have Sardis, which is called the Dead Church. Now, the, the only good thing about the church at this time um, was that there was a handful of people who stayed true and held on. So that was the positive that God said. Like, even though your church is dead, even though there are a lot of people who have kind of just gone away from the truth, there are still a handful of people who are staying true and holding on. In terms of the negative, um, God said that the church at Sardis says they're alive, but they're really dead. They are way off track, but they can turn around and they can come back. The reward for those in Sardis is that their names will not be removed from the book of life, and they will be celebrated by God before the angels. So pretty cool stuff, right? Um, if you overcome, you will your name will be in the book of life, which is where we all want our names to be. Uh, next up, we have Philadelphia. Philadelphia was known as the missionary church. Um, the positive God has for Philadelphia is that they kept his word and they had not denied his name. Now, this is the other church where God literally gave no reproof. Nothing negative to say about the church at Philadelphia. And the reward for the Philadelphia church is being protected from the last days, becoming pillars in God's temple, and never having to leave. Oh, and they also get the name of God placed on them. All good stuff. And then finally, last but not least, we have Laodicea, known as the lukewarm church. Now, the sad thing about Laodicea is that it's the only church where God had nothing good to say, no positive traits listed whatsoever. Um, God refers to the people of Laodicea as lukewarm, in need of nothing, indifferent, 
He uses words like wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. So not great for Laodicea. Um, the reward for those who overcome is that they get to eat a meal together with God and eventually sit with him on his throne. So that's it. The seven letters to the seven churches. Now, there is a lot more we could discuss. I mean, we talked about the onion peel. We talked about three different layers. But this goes so much deeper um, than we even have time for. But I wanted to end with two takeaways, two things that really stand out to me as I think about the seven churches. First, if the church, if each church represents a time period, and I believe they do, then it's pretty chilling to read the last two, right? So to the church in Philadelphia, it flat out says, because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Friends, what else could that mean, right? The next church, the last church, is Laodicea. So it really suggests that we are heading toward the end of time, that the Laodicean church is the church of the end times, the one that will experience a time of testing, a time of struggle that we can't even comprehend right now. And then there is the whole description of Laodicea, right? I mean, it can't be more obvious. This is us. This is the way we live, indifferent, lacking for nothing, especially in the United States. We act like things are difficult. We act like we're persecuted. But we all know we're not, right? Those are just first world problems. We're lukewarm. We're floating through life with no passion for the things that really matter. We're distracted by politics, global warming, drama in the entertainment industry, etc., etc., etc. But if this is true, if we are the church of Laodicea, we need to wake up. We need to see things for what they are. Only then will we will we be able to hold on to the things that God asks us to hold on to so that we can go to dinner with him and eventually sit down beside him on his throne. Okay, let's land the plane. Friends, the letters to the seven churches have always wrecked me. Um, as I read them, I picture the Christians in those churches in John's day. I picture the church throughout history and what they faced, and I stop to evaluate my own life. Where am I the church of Ephesus? Where am I the church of Laodicea? And how can I be more like Smyrna and Philadelphia, the churches where Jesus had nothing negative to say? But that's it for today. Um, what a start to the right bookend, the last book of the Bible, and the climax to a story that is quickly wrapping up. Thanks again for checking things out. Um, if you're a regular, thanks for being along for the ride. I uh, love getting to do this with you guys. Uh, the next time, we will take a look at a few more sets of seven. You know, seven is a really popular number in the book of uh, Revelation. So come on back next week or in a week or two, and we'll keep this train moving. Um, until then, everyone, have a great week. And as always, keep transcending human.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, And as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.